This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Welcome this week to Race to Value. Something really interesting has happened to societal awareness of our country's healthcare system as a result of this COVID-19 pandemic. I have a feeling that we will no longer be hearing the rhetoric that America has the best healthcare in the world. Despite decades of dreadful outcomes and cost, quality, and access, society really hasn't yet confronted the issue of hospitals that provide low-value care. This is because so many of them are the biggest employers in cities and states across the U.S., and despite medical errors serving as the number three cause of death and unpaid hospital bills leading as the number one reason for personal bankruptcy in our country and having all the vast disparities and care that are prevalent across racial and sociodemographic lines and having this general sense of pricing opaqueness that makes every patient shudder in fear of the unknown, we still have not yet seen a community-led movement towards hospital accountability for health equity, quality of care, and avoidance of low-value care. And, you know, Daniel, I'm thinking that I have this feeling now that we've reached this tipping point and this coronavirus pandemic has really made it clear the importance of high-quality hospitals for the health of communities, particularly communities of color and low-income households. Eric, I think you're right. The pandemic has definitely put a spotlight on our industry in a big way by exposing areas in serious need of improvement. If hospitals are to equitably deliver the high-quality care that's essential for improving community health, the time is now. So assessing how well hospitals are serving all of their patients in their communities is a key first step in improving their quality of care. And I'm so excited today to discuss the work that the Lown Institute has been doing in this area. The Lown Institute is a think tank that's generating ideas for a just and caring system for health. And it's developed a tool to answer the question, are hospitals providing high value care, achieving excellent patient outcomes, and meeting their obligation to advanced health equity in their communities. The Lown Institute Hospitals Index is a novel way of evaluating and ranking hospitals in order to help them better serve their patients and communities and to hold them accountable to address social determinants of health. Today, we plan to discuss the tool with Dr. Vikas Sani and Shannon Brownlee of the Lown Institute. Let's see how their hospital ranking system is breaking new ground as we look to win this race to value. Vikas and Shannon, welcome to Race to Value today. We're so happy to have you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Well, as we start our conversation today, I first want to express my condolences for the loss of Dr. Bernard Laon last week. For our listeners out there who may not be familiar with the work of Dr. Lown as a pioneering cardiologist, humanitarian, and founder of the Lown Institute, I thought I could provide some background context. 
As a scientist, Dr. Lown did seminal work on sudden cardiac death, and he was the co-inventor of the modern direct current defibrillator, a device that revolutionized the practice of cardiology and saved countless lives. He created one of the first cardiac intensive care units and transformed the treatment of heart attack patients. As co-founder of two anti-nuclear proliferation groups, his activism united doctors across the globe during the Cold War, opening the eyes of millions to the dangers of nuclear weapons, and he earned a Nobel Peace Prize during that time. He was also an early leader in the value-based care movement as one of the first physicians to recognize the importance of overtreatment and the power of money to corrupt his beloved profession. So I wanted to ask both of you today, can you both speak to the legacy of Dr. Bernard Lown, an advocate of value-based care, and what we can learn from him as we work together to create a high-value health system, one that we all want to be economically competitive in this global marketplace? Well, I think the legacy of Dr. Lown with regard to what we now call value-based care is actually quite profound. And I think it starts from a fundamental premise. And that fundamental premise is that the most important thing is taking care of the patient in front of you. And I had numerous conversations with Dr. Lown about the nature of, of our minimalist approach, our avoidance of unnecessary interventions and surgeries. And what drove it, and it was, they were always fascinating questions and discussions because he really didn't make a distinction between what's patient-centered, what's value-driven, what's technologically feasible and appropriate, and what is just plain old good care. And he would multiple instances point out that the most efficient care, the care that was the least expensive and most clinically effective involved knowing and understanding the patient and their preferences so well that the choices and decisions you made in so many areas in medicine, which are discretionary, that those could be effectively guided by that relationship. And if you did that, you would actually save a boatload of money. And he tried to convince the world of that for 20, 30 years and got very frustrated because in many ways, the world wasn't ready to listen to that message in the 70s, a little more in the 80s, more in the 90s. And in some ways, it's now that that message after 30, 40 years is really salient. And, and, you know, the irony is that I don't think I ever talked to him specifically about this, but I don't think he would have liked the term value-based care and not to criticize it, but in part because he felt like that the idea that you would have this very efficient system that really improved the health of the population would flow naturally out of ensuring that you did as little as possible to people and as much as possible for them. And that's a subtle distinction, but he used to say that do as much as possible for the patient and as little as possible to the patient. And for you know most of his career, medicine was increasingly thinking of ways to do things to patients, to give things to patients rather than do things for patients. But I was astonished the first time I met Dr. Lown to discover a kindred spirit in my view of what had been happening in healthcare, which I came to very slowly. I mean, I started as a, as a healthcare reporter, as a, a biomedical research reporter at US News. And over the course of 10 years there, and then another several years at a think tank, I became increasingly sort of disillusioned by the incredible sort of business mindedness of medicine and the lack of evidence for so much of what was being done. So it was really a, an incredible revelation to, to meet Dr. Lown, this guy of such stature who shared many of my views. Because, and Shannon, thank you for sharing your perspective and your thoughts about the life and legacy of Dr. Lown. It's obvious that he's influenced your work and you can really hear that in your explanation. It seems like Dr. Lown had this unbridled passion to create a radically better system through his commitment to social justice. And now is definitely the time to heed the call for this more justice-oriented health system. 
We're in such a unique moment in history where the moral arc of the universe is bending towards justice based on the inequities that we've seen in healthcare over the last few decades. And it's one thing to talk about it, but many are probably thinking, how do you really measure social justice in healthcare? And that seems to be what the Lown Institute is doing with regard to your hospital's index ranking tool. Not only does it rank hospitals based on their quality of care, but your ranking model also looks at how much they contribute to their community with metrics like charity care and pay equity. The index is the first hospital ranking to evaluate how well hospitals serve people of lower income or education level and people of color. And it also is the first hospital ranking to consider the amount that hospitals spend on community benefits, those services and activities that nonprofit hospitals support to improve the health of communities they serve in order to maintain their tax exempt status. Can you speak to how Dr. Lowndes' ideas informed this project and why the ranking tool is needed in the value-based care movement when you have so many other ranking lists like US News and World Report, Hospital Compare, LeapFrog, HealthGrades and HCAPS scores, all of these attempting to rank hospitals? So an idea for an alternative hospital ranking preceded me coming to the Lowndes Institute. I left US News in 1999 and knew at the time that there were a lot of things that the US News ranking did that I thought were really not right. I mean, they effectively validated a lot of behavior by the famous hospitals that I knew wasn't really very patient-centered and thought about something that I, I kind of jokingly called the real best hospitals before I came to Lown. And then, you know, I met Vikas and, and he and I had such a meeting of the minds about so many aspects of healthcare. And we started talking about a ranking. And eventually it really morphed quite a bit from my sort of original thinking about it, which really had focused at the time a lot on sort of end of life care and, and the craziness of end of life care in so many hospitals that made it to the top at US News and World Report. So it was this evolution of this project over the years that started to, to be imbued with a lot of Dr. Lowndes ideas. Vikas can talk specifically about how we started to coalesce around these ideas around civic leadership and the need for racial equity and, and many of the aspects of the, the hospital's index that I think really distinguish it from any other ranking out there. I think at the heart of you know how Dr. Lowndes' ideas inform the index, you know, we'd have to you know point out that this is also the first hospital index that actually measures overuse or unnecessary care. That's a key metric that we're looking at. And, you know, we can talk about that later, but I think, you know, it was always clear to us, both in, you know, when we were training and, and practicing with Dr. Lown, and then in more recent years at the Lown Institute, that there was, there was a strong connection between money spent in one area not being spent in another, and the fact that there are always trade-offs, and that those trade-offs really matter when you look at things like uh, racial equity or other forms of inequities in the system, including class and education, as you pointed out. So it was part of the DNA to want to look beyond more traditional measures, and that's what we did. We did feel that clinical quality, you know, measures of outcomes like mortality were important to include. And so we include those. But even there, we began to recognize that outcomes per se were not going to be sufficient as a portrayal of the kind of performance we wanted to really report. And so for us, value, you know, the name of this podcast, the value of the care was as important as the outcome. So we wanted to look and are looking at not just the outcomes, but also price. And so I think from Dr. Lown was holistic in, in a remarkable way. So he, he never would have made a clear distinction, though he could make the distinction, you know, in terms of what was important. And as Shannon said, he probably wouldn't like the term value-based care, just like he didn't like the idea of doing empathy rounds or compassion rounds. He found all, you know, he 
found this sort of fragmentation of the process of care to be one of the fundamental problems of modern health. You know, and we like to say um, good hospitals are vital to healthy communities, but how you define and measure good matters. And we made this ranking in part because other rankings were not measuring everything that matters. Well, I'd love to speak a little bit more about the hospital rankings and maybe focus in on the civic leadership component. I, I've found that that aspect of the hospital index, that which factors in spending on charity care and pay equity and racial in inclusivity, it's just truly groundbreaking. And what I also find fascinating about your rankings is that the rating system relies not just on those quality measures that we talked about, but also on the hospital's community-minded policies and avoidance of unnecessary care. And you won't find the usual suspects on your list, on the top of your list that are on others, like Mass General, Cleveland Clinic, Johns Hopkins, Mayo. They're on tops of everyone else's list, but your rankings really show that oftentimes those hospitals with exemplary clinical outcomes and a national reputation, they often don't score as well in addressing inequities that affect the health of their communities. And what I think is most important about the index is that it forces hospitals really to rethink about what it means to be great. I mean, it's showing them that civic leadership really matters because the health of the people in a hospital's community reflects things that go on outside of the brick and mortar of the hospital. And the hospital has a responsibility to support patients while they're in the home and, and in the community. And looking at last year's hospital index report, there were a number of hospitals that are they're renowned for their quality of care, and they get an A plus or an A for patient outcomes, but they get a D for civic leadership. And you know, teaching hospitals, I, I know, often do pretty well on supporting their communities, but we see in your rankings that sometimes pay equity, like you know, having multi-million dollar salaries for top executives that often sinks them in your calculation of civic leadership. And as I understand, there wasn't a single hospital in the top 100 for patient outcomes that was in the top 100 for civic leadership and vice versa. So I wanted to ask you, how has your hospital index been received by the industry and those that are in the quote unquote traditional top 100? And, and then how is this being utilized at the community level? For example, in communities where you have two hospitals that are 20 minutes apart with wildly different racial inclusivity scores, how is that being factored into a community movement to create equity? And then have hospitals started as a result of that really starting to reexamine their culture and their commitment to health equity based on the data that you've presented? Our goal with this, especially the first outing with this measure was to really be aspirational. We did want to be disruptive in a good way. We wanted to ask questions that weren't being asked. And we wanted to measure things that weren't being measured and reported on. That said, I think we recognized early on that we would find names that we didn't expect to find. And, and we really didn't know who it was going to be. So it was, a, it was a kind of voyage of discovery for us as well. It was kind of Christmas, <laughs> you know, who's going to come up to the top. Yeah. Uh, but to your point, I mean, what's interesting to me as I've looked at that at the lists is that, you know, academic medical centers do actually vary a lot in their social and civic leadership metrics, particularly inclusivity and community benefits. So some are outstanding in those categories, but you're, you're absolutely right that pay equity was one of the ones that tended to bring them down. And I think that may simply reflect other dynamics that have to do with the labor market and broader trends in executive compensation, not just in healthcare, but in society as a whole. But we nevertheless wanted to point that out and start the conversation. I think that it's been received with a certain amount of caution, which I think is appropriate. I think people are applauding the effort and recognizing that we do need to move in this direction. But in the details, I think we got a lot more queries and curiosity than we did particular requests to hone in on one thing and start working on it. 
But I will tell you, over the last few months, that has picked up, and we are now actually in multiple conversations where people are now ready to start saying, okay, if this is so, let's start talking about, you know, what are the elements that would go into improving this, and how can we partner to, to make that happen? You asked, have hospitals started re-examining their culture and commitment to health equity based on the data you've presented? Let's be really clear, Black Lives Matter has really kindled that movement in the hospital sector, where hospitals all over the country are looking at their efforts or non-efforts towards health equity and through kind of who are they hiring, who are, who are their doctors, everything from that to who are their patients that they making sure that they're taking care of all the patients that they could. And that's the piece that I think we are contributing to most is we looked at something called health equity, which Vikas created this, this metric for, which effectively measured whether or not the patients inside the hospital reflected the racial and socioeconomic status of the people outside the hospital. And hospitals are starting to pay attention to that as well as who are they hiring and what's the racial mix of their patients. So we've contributed certainly, but this is a much broader movement and we're excited that we effectively anticipated that this would start to be important and included that metric in the hospital's index. And you asked another question, which was, you know, what does it mean when you see two hospitals 20 minutes apart with wildly different racial inclusivity scores? What it means, bottom line, is that hospitals do a lot of things to affect who walks in their doors. It's not like they just sit there and wait passively for whoever comes in the emergency room or whatever patients are referred to get their surgery in the hospital. They actively seek out, many hospitals actively seek out, in particular, patients with good private insurance because it pays more. And so they may advertise in a suburb nearby that's got a high income. They may put a primary care clinic in a high income neighborhood to try to feed patients into the hospital. And there are also cultural things, cultural history that affects where patients end up having to do with where they feel welcome. And what does the lobby actually look like? And does it welcome people of all races and all socioeconomic levels? Or does it basically say, this is a hospital for rich white people, and you probably won't feel very welcome here? Another thing I, I would add to this conversation is really that what we are finding with these measures are that they're reflections of the society at large. I mean, it's not like hospitals have created these patterns out of whole cloth, out of their own behavior and only their own behavior. That is absolutely not true. I mean, residential segregation and the geographic spread of different racial groups are fundamental to what we see in the hospital racial inclusivity index. And that's been a long time coming. That's the baleful legacy of a lot of history in America. So it's really the case that we wanted to measure something, not necessarily make a claim about why and what the drivers were to reach this point, but we did want to measure something so that from this point forward, if we aspire to be better, and if we are publicly saying we want to be better, then we should use some of these metrics to see how we're doing. I'd like to ask more about the disparities that we've been discussing and talk about patient inclusivity and community benefit contribution as it pertains to COVID-19. Hospitals all over the country have really struggled with COVID-19 and facing have been facing an overwhelming number of patients, shortages of staff and PPE, and widespread moral injury. However, some hospitals have been affected much more strongly than others. A recent featured article in the New York Times shows the, the experiences of clinicians and patients at one of the hardest hit hospitals in Los Angeles during the winter COVID-19 surge. And the vast inequalities between the safety net institutions and other hospitals in the area. It showed how one safety net hospital had almost 100% people of color and received high scores in your index for patient inclusivity, whereas the quote unquote top hospitals in LA scored close to the bottom. And this comparison of separate and unequal 
is a vivid example of segregated hospital systems in Los Angeles that, that's creating significant harm in the community with disproportionate impacts in COVID outcomes with those in low-income communities. So during the pandemic, other regions did a much better job of coordinating hospital care. In Massachusetts, for example, the state mandated that hospitals meet regularly to discuss their patient needs and transfer patients if necessary. And this involved coordinating across hospital systems, regions, and the entire continuum of care, not just hospitals, but additional institutions that people came from and go back to like nursing homes, prisons, and homeless shelters. With your hospital index pointing out these instances of hospital segregation, what do you think will be the result between community and hospitals? Will, will there be additional cooperation that we'll see as a new standard? The separate but unequal aspect of hospitals has been there all along. And what COVID did is it really laid it bare. And so the index, I think, has helped kind of illuminate some of the various aspects around that, what it means to be separate and unequal. And we've certainly seen instances of cooperation among hospitals related to, to the pandemic. Certainly in Boston, for example, the hospitals were were much better, and, and Massachusetts writ large, were much better at making sure that ICU beds were available when one hospital became crowded and ICU beds were open at another hospital. And that is partly because the governor stepped in and insisted on daily conversations among the hospitals. But will cooperation, this kind of cooperation among hospitals become the new standard automatically when COVID is over? I'm not so sure unless we start changing the way we pay hospitals, the way we regulate them, the way we legislate them. This is a, you know, the heart of the matter, really, isn't it? I think the way we've organized our healthcare system and funded, and in particular, the hospital sector, is really not built for purpose in terms of addressing population health needs and doing so in a way that really delivers high value and is a high performing system. So COVID simply has illuminated all of that, as, as Shannon said. So if, if we're going to continue with some of these very, very small green shoots of cooperation, there'll have to be major changes. And I think those major changes will require more regional coordination, some degree of changes in payment mechanisms. I mean, I personally think that, you know, global budgeting is absolutely fundamental to healthcare transformation, just, you know, an opinion based on my own experience. And if you can do some of those things, in addition, you do need some external coordinating function because the market really hasn't and actually, in my view, cannot accomplish what we need it to accomplish here. The analogy I like to use is if we built airports the way we build hospitals, you know, we'd have two airports across the street from each other. And some people would use one and some people would use the other. And it wouldn't make a ton of sense. But while everybody's making a lot of money and everybody's doing well, it makes sense. And only when you get hit with a major catastrophe that, that you begin to wonder, was this really the right way to organize things? And so I think it's a moment of reflection and it's a moment in which we ought to examine a lot of assumptions and examine them deeply because what we've seen, I think, should be enough to be a wake-up call to everybody. And that means all stakeholders, you know, not just payers, not just hospitals and provider groups, but you know, legislators, other policy people, and community and civic leaders. I mean, what we've seen with COVID is healthcare can be too important to leave to the healthcare sector. <laughs> yeah, and let's let's look at this word cooperation in the framework of a values-based system or value-based care. When you when we talk about cooperation. In relationship to COVID, we're talking about, you know, are hospitals willing to open their doors to patients that need a bed regardless of their insurance status? But in fact, we ought to think about this in a bigger way as having a system, having a hospital system. Right now, what we have is a bunch of 
individual businesses operating in the same city, in the same county, in the same state. And as Vikas put it, they're not distributed in a way that necessarily makes sense in terms of what the, the population needs, what the community needs. They also don't invest in technology in ways that make sense according to what the population needs and the community needs. We allocate resources, we, we allocate beds, we allocate CT machines, we allocate labor, physician labor and nursing labor, um, not on the basis of what the population's needs are, but on the basis of what that individual business is going to invest in and has the money to invest in and thinks is going to bring in revenue. And so if we really want a value-based system, what do we value? And what we should be valuing is the most health for the most people. And instead, we have kind of thought of value in, in a little bit of a more narrow way, but I think we have to start thinking about it in terms of health for the most people. And then we start seeing that cooperation among hospitals takes on a very, very different flavor, I think. A part of this cooperation discussion that we're having, and as you mentioned, it's a moment to examine our assumptions, is we're in this moment that's partly a success story and partly a challenge, but it's the success story is that our industry over the last few months has had an impressive and record-breaking development of several COVID-19 vaccines. But ever since the COVID vaccines have been in development, policy experts and activists have been concerned about equity with vaccine distribution. And sure enough, we have inequities that are materializing and becoming very apparent. And now it is clear that in our haste to get shots in arms, we're leaving behind many people who are at most risk of COVID-19 infection and death. I was reading in the Los Angeles Times just this morning about a vaccine distribution program that was intentionally engineered for equitable distribution by providing codes to people in vulnerable populations. But even here, whites, including those who are not eligible for the vaccine currently, were being vaccinated ahead of the people most in need. And according to the Kaiser Family Foundation's latest analysis of state-level data on race and ethnicity of COVID-19 vaccinations, Black and Hispanic and Latinx people are receiving fewer vaccinations proportionally compared to their shares of COVID-19 infections and deaths. In Texas, for example, 20% of vaccinations have gone to Hispanics, even though they account for 42% of cases and 47% of deaths in the state. And in Massachusetts, 81% of vaccinations have gone to white people, even though they only account for 49% of cases in the state. I've seen that you both have been on the forefront of this important issue of equitable distribution of vaccines. Can you share with our listeners, how do we ameliorate the issues of health equity in our vaccine distribution model? And how should we be addressing those impacted populations who for years have been so disenfranchised by our health system that they're inherently distrusting of vaccines because of these prior experiences of harm? The deployment of the vaccines has, and all the problems that you've outlined, you know, has been incredibly disappointing, but not exactly surprising. I mean, it's kind of like, in the midst of a Category 5 hurricane, watching your very, very flimsy house get blown away and trying to build something more sturdy at the same time, you know, it, it just doesn't work. This is the kind of work that has to happen ahead of time. And what work do I mean? Well, we actually could use a well-funded and well-organized public health system that can actually focus on the delivery of key elements of public health goods that isn't constantly either in competition with or in some ways tripping over medical care delivery system. And that's kind of part of what we've seen with COVID. In Massachusetts, the vaccine distribution has really been phenomenally bad. And, and this is the home of one of the vaccine manufacturers. And so you know, here we are, we can celebrate the biological and the scientific achievement of the vaccine in record time, which is phenomenal. And then when we look at kind of what's happened thereafter, it's, it's kind of just almost, it's not really an afterthought. I don't want to say that, but it is definitely disappointing. And so 
how are we going to fix that? Well, I think the way we have to fix that is, again, to use population health needs as the metric with which we organize, the organizing principle for both public health and medical care delivery. And if we do that, we have to do it not in the midst of the hurricane, but in the quiet periods in between. We cannot afford to forget this lesson. And I am confident we will not forget this lesson. It's been too disruptive to too many people for us to go back to business as usual. So with regard to vaccination programs and impacted populations, I think one of the most important things in populations that have been disenfranchised for so long is really to focus local leadership and local resources on the problem. And that means engaging and having local leadership in decision-making capacity. I know that's hard to do in the midst of a, an emergency like this, given the patterns of behavior during normal times, but this illustrates that these are the kinds of efforts and initiatives we have to have ongoing if we're going to be able to meet these challenges. Well, I wanted to revisit the hospital index and talk about how it reflects the avoidance of the use of low value services. And you know, as a value-based care executive and someone that's really well-versed in this, I, I just continue to be alarmed by what we're seeing in terms of you know, our health spending, I believe it's upwards of 30% of health spending in the United States is wasted on low value care and administrative complexity and other inefficiencies. As I've seen, like low value care has been estimated to range from $100 billion to $700 billion in cost every year. And the harms of low value care are also innumerable. I'll just, for our listeners' sake, you know, uh, outline that for them. But you know, you have overuse of medications, which include over-the-counter drugs and supplements, and they've created an epidemic of serious side effects that are entirely preventable at a great financial cost to the system. And then you have over-screening of cancers, which you would think inherently, okay, well, that, that, that's, a, that's a good thing, right? But we're treating patients often for cancers that are false alarms, and these patients may have never even had symptoms and we're exposing them to powerful and potentially harmful chemotherapeutic drugs and radiation. And then most alarmingly, you have all these unnecessary procedures that are happening way too frequently due to the supplier-induced demand when providers over-treat because of an economic incentive to do so. And I know we have to sometimes tippy-toe around the language on that, but you know, just from my own experience, my very first position as a healthcare administrator, you know, I worked with this cardiologist and everyone called him full metal jacket. He would put up to 30 stents in a, in a patient. And that's far beyond the one or two stents that you should have in your lifetime. And it, it was just alarming to see how, for me, like as an early careerist, you know, coming out of college with a sense of altruism, changing the world, and then you kind of see the underbelly of fee-for-service where patients are ATM machines. So I wanted to ask you, can you walk our listeners through your personal crusade to address this issue of millions of Americans receiving medical treatments, tests, and procedures that are wasteful, ineffective, and even deadly? Vikas, I know you had your own experience with Dr. Lown, where you were brought up with a deep sense of humanism, which affected your clinical practice, and that continues to influence you and your leadership today. And then Shannon, you wrote the book in 2008, Overtreated, Why Too Much Medicine is Making Us Sicker and Poorer. That was a landmark achievement that really foreshadowed the current attention to the problem. So I wanted just both of you to really discuss how this commitment to low value care and, and addressing this issue, how it's been a big part of your life's work and you know how that informs the work that the Lown Institute is doing as well. For me, it would have to start with something I mentioned earlier, which is I didn't fully appreciate the uniqueness of Dr. Lown's approach, particularly for coronary disease until I left his practice and his group and was in, in community practice. And it was then that I really understood. Uh, it was actually kind of bewildering sometimes. And I would say that while fee-for-service is an enabler and fee-for-service makes for a path of least resistance, 
you know, for the vast majority of overdiagnosis and overtreatment, it's really not a monetary issue. I mean, subliminally, it may well be, and quite often it was, in fact, <laughs> I was just looking at a video of Dr. Lown talking about he and Sam Levine developed uh, mobilization after a heart attack within days of a heart attack. And at the time, there was pandemonium because everybody criticized them. They're, you're going to kill people. What the hell are you doing getting people up? And it turned out that more people were getting killed by laying in bed for six weeks. You know, so the subliminal piece is there, but a lot of it is deeply embedded in the culture. And it has to do with anxiety anxiety of uncertainty on the part of the patient, on the part of the physician. I mean, when you're in that encounter, when you're trying to assess something, when you're thinking about it carefully and think about all the bad things that could happen, you know, there's plenty of scope to be anxious. The real problem is that the solution to that is not necessarily get another test or do a procedure. So what I learned from Dr. Lown really was probably on two dimensions. One is at the level of knowledge and the other is the level of trust. And both have to do with the relationship with the patient. When I say knowledge, I don't mean, you know, book knowledge. I mean, knowing that patient's life and world intimately, because that was when I saw the magic. That was kind of the longitudinality of the relationship which is hard to find in training programs. So I think it's a real challenge, but the longitudinality allows you to understand so many nuances. And that is the height of efficiency because you will almost certainly understand when something is a really meaningful new symptom that is quite troubling and concerning and needs to be investigated. And when it is almost certainly not. And the relationship can be the balm for both parties not to get overboard with testing and treatment. The trust is the other dimension. And of course, follow-up is key. I mean, we all know, those of us who are clinicians all know that you can't predict sometimes, and sometimes presentations are extremely unusual, and you can get a nasty surprise. But trust on both sides that you'll see the patient again, they know how to reach you, that you have an ongoing relationship. Those two dimensions were critical to providing a, a level of care that I think was high value. And so to see the opposite so much, it was bewildering, but then just troubling beyond belief. And that was when I first began to say, we can do better and, and we should do better. And it's not even about the money. It's like when you see the harms that can occur from unnecessary treatment that really, really could have been avoided, that's when you really, really get upset. And so I think all of those elements are what have driven me to look at this. So I can trace my interest in the problem of overuse to a story that I wrote in the 1990s and the kind of trouble I had getting it published. It was a story about PSA testing, prostate-specific antigen testing. And I wrote one of the first pieces that called the test into question. And I remember interviewing, a number of things struck me about it. Number one, I, I remember interviewing urologists who were really trying to get their profession to, their specialty to, to acknowledge that it wasn't very well demonstrated that it actually benefited patients and in fact was leading to an enormous amount of harm among men who had prostate cancers or prostate conditions that they were most likely to die with rather than from. And I remember talking to other urologists who so clearly believed in it. It was an article of faith and they didn't actually see the harm that was being caused. They often lost track of patients who went on to have years and years of incontinence and impotence. So they didn't actually have any idea how much harm was being caused. They just believed that screening was the right thing to do, as most of the population did. And then I wrote this piece for US News and my editor trashed it. 
and I won't name the editor because he's now a terrific editor someplace else, but I remember sitting there being outraged that this guy trashed a piece that I had written when I was one of their lead medical writers. I'd reported this and this is what the reporting said and he trashed the piece. And that told me that everybody believed and so I started to get some insight into screening through that. And then I did a piece on mammography and I got excoriated, by the way, by clinicians for writing these pieces. They said, oh, you're going to kill men by discouraging them from a PSA test. And you're going to kill women by discouraging them from mammograms. And it just started to build and build and build that there were more and more instances where we, we put our faith in something where evidence either was completely lacking for efficacy, which was true of many, many interventions. It made biological sense, but it, it didn't actually have any evidence or there was countervailing evidence and everybody ignored it because it made so much sense biologically that how could it not be true that putting a stent in prevented heart attacks? How could it not be true that catching cancer early would lead to lower mortality? And it kind of consumed me. And that was how I ended up writing the book. And that's something that it isn't going away. And it be, it's a very rich problem from the perspective of what all the drivers are, as Vikas says. It's not just fee-for-service. It's this entire sort of cultural milieu that patients and doctors are steeped in that continue driving the use of services that are not that likely, if completely unlikely, to help the patient and yet put the patient in harm's way unnecessarily. And I think that's the thing that I want to carry forward as I continue working in this area is focusing on preventable harm as the new term of art, the unnecessary risk that patients face when they are um, when they receive a service, that is unlikely to help them. The harm stays the same, even if the benefit goes to zero. On April 7, we will be releasing our data, our new data on overuse in hospitals as part of the Lown Hospitals Index. And listeners, if they're interested, can go to our, our web-based release of those data on April 7, and they can register at launinstituteorg slash presents. And we're going to be talking to some experts about the sort of general problem of overuse in hospitals, but also to a couple of the winners who they did the best on avoiding overuse in their hospitals. Yeah, I'm excited by that for the wonks in the audience. You know, we're finally updating a lot of these standard algorithms to use ICD-10. And uh, we've also tightened up some of the criteria that are used out there. So I'm excited to show what we've done and announce some of the outstanding hospitals. And we are the only ranking that does focus part of the ranking on, on rates of overuse. As uh, Steve Nissen of the Cleveland Clinic likes to say, the road to hell is paved with biologic plausibility. I thought that was Jerry Hoffman. Uh, it's <laughs> but it's a good phrase, no matter what. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have covered so much ground today with hospitals and thinking about how to measure them and understand the provision of community benefit, health equity. We've talked about overuse. And there's another big item that I wanted to bring up to you both today, and that's hospital price transparency. As many of our listeners know, on January 1st, a new rule from CMS on hospital price transparency went into effect that could help patients make more consumer-oriented choices around value. For example, they could understand the cost of hospital services before they actually receive them. Many hospitals were already sharing their list prices publicly before the new year, but these were in effect useless because they weren't what insurers actually pay. The new rule that went into effect is really important because for the first time, it requires hospitals to publish their negotiated discount prices online for all services. Hospitals are required to publish a user-friendly display of their prices for 300 specific shoppable services like CT scans and MRIs and patient visits, blood tests, and even some elective procedures. And hospitals, for those of us in our industry, we've, we've seen this in the headlines. They, they didn't want this. And the American Hospital Association actually fought the rule in court, and their appeals failed. And now the rule, of course, has gone into effect. So I wanted to ask you both, will this new rule have a positive impact on prices 
since patients now have better estimates in hand that can make better choices when choosing a hospital? I mean, are we going to see competition happening between hospitals and maybe even downward market pressure happening since insurers and employers are now going to have access to pricing during negotiations? And then also, is this maybe going to even open up an opportunity to spawn innovation where app developers can come in and build consumer-friendly tools that will allow everyone to look at prices across the continuum. I would love to get your perspective for our listeners today on this very new hospital price transparency rule. I would say that, well, first of all, I would have to doff my hat to President Trump and to CMS head Seema Verma for having put this through and having actively defended it in the courts. I think it's a positive step forward and it's long overdue. That said, will it have the effects that you are wondering about? I think, you know, the jury is going to be out on that for quite a while. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is really the broad question of whether or not decision-making around the choice of specific tests and treatments, diagnostic pathways, et cetera, is really as shoppable as all that. I'm a bit older, so it may be that 30-somethings and 40-somethings will really be into shopping for the MRI, shopping for the CT, and for those things that are, you know, elective, non-urgent, and relatively non-anxious, that may be possible. So at the margin, I think it's a positive, and it may. But really, the question of whether it'll have a market effect is a question of how big the effect will be. And I think that's really hard to know. It still is the case that most people are going to talk to their clinician, uh, listen to their clinician, and generally follow the path or even the, the location that their clinician recommends. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I just think there's multiple additional layers that would have to get with the program before we would see an effect. And I personally am not sure that is necessarily the most efficient way of doing it. But because we've been in this social experiment of the last 10 to 20 years of putting more and more co-pays and deductibles on the shoulders of patients, which I don't support. I don't think that's a good policy, and I don't think that's been the right policy, but that is, in fact, what has happened. And because that's happened, there is now an incentive, although you know, at what cost in terms of worry and delays in health and the like, we won't know unless people really look at this carefully. So I do think that given what we've done, it may help people. And to that extent, it may create an additional force that may moderate price increases. But I, I think that there are larger and probably more fundamentally just solutions that would go much further than this. I think that the bigger downward pressure comes from insurers and employers who have been largely derelict in really exerting true downward pressure on hospital prices. If they had been more effective at it, uh, we wouldn't be seeing the prices that we see today. So why are employers, one would think that since many employers are self-insured and many other employers struggle to cover their patients, why would they not have an incentive to really put pressure on hospitals? And I think one of the reasons is because there's these relationships among the CEOs of local businesses and the hospitals. You know, CEOs want to be on the boards of hospitals because it's very prestigious. You look like you're doing good for your community. And so there's kind of been this mutual back scratching that's gone on that I think has not really been acknowledged and employers have found it easier to push more of the rising prices of insuring their employees onto the employees than to put the pressure on the hospitals. And I think one of the things that this transparency rules do is they expose to everybody what has been going on. And it makes it, I think, harder for employers to dodge their responsibility in saying, look, we can't pay these prices and neither can our employees. You got to bring it down. 
And that's what I'm hoping this does and insurers the same way who have also found it easier to just push the prices through to the customer than to actually bring down the prices of the hospitals to really put pressure on the hospitals. And as hospitals have, have consolidated and grown into bigger and bigger commercial entities, it has been harder and harder for insurers to put that kind of pressure on them. So I think that's where the real market pressure is going to come from. I'm, I'm dubious that individual patients with their two little feet voting are going to have as big an impact as people think they are. The theory is that those two little feet multiplied by millions will have an effect. And in practice, we'll see. But I do think that the consolidation that Shannon's mentioned amongst hospitals has also occurred on the insurance side. I mean, everybody's getting bigger and it's been this sort of race to get bigger for negotiating leverage. But the theory of, of market-based economics is that that is supposed to create competition, but in fact, the monopolization is doing the opposite. And net-net, there's really been no drop in the pricing. So to me, it looks like, and, and I'm sort of a devotee of, of it, the economist Kenneth Arrow on this, it, it's hard to treat healthcare like a commodity, normal commodity like others. And I think there absolutely has to be a role for government to step in and set some rules and regulations on pricing and then actually enforce them. And I think it has to be done in a, in a way, it's naturally a political process, but it has to be done in a way that doesn't necessarily bankrupt the entire sector or bankrupt individual stakeholders. But we clearly have to develop a glide path that brings the prices under control. And to do that, it's not going to happen. It hasn't happened and it's not going to happen without the use of more than the bully pulpit. And so some people you know, push hard for single payer. I, I know George Halverson, a former CEO of Kaiser, likes to talk about single buyer. And really, at the end of the day, the leverage that you get from that is part of the equation and can be part of the equation, but is not in our system. Well, Vikas and Shannon, as we wrap up our conversation today, I want to thank you so much for providing your perspective for leaders of value-based care in this post-pandemic era. I commend you for your work at the Lown Institute and how it generates bold ideas for a just and caring system of health. Now, I've heard you both say that you believe in a radically better system for health. And so let's finish by asking, is having a radically better system even possible without having to build it anew from the ground up? If it is, can you provide our listeners with some parting thoughts about how to get there and ultimately how we can win this race to value? I think this race to value is, is one of the most important things we can do in this country because I think healthcare has been consuming so much of our GDP and will continue to consume bigger and bigger chunks of GDP, making it more and more difficult to devote resources towards things that are more upstream that contribute to health, like decent housing, like making sure people have real jobs, like making sure everybody has access to high quality education. And so we've got to get the cost of healthcare under control and we need to do it in a way that doesn't simply get rid of all the stuff that actually contributes to, to patients' health. So how do we get there? I think we have to think much more clearly about what it is we do value and have real national consensus around the need for everybody to be as healthy as possible. We should think of the pursuit of health or the opportunity to be healthy as one of our inalienable rights, just as the pursuit of happiness is an inalienable right. And we're not quite there yet, but I think we are starting to get there, especially with this conversation around race. Yeah, we do need a radically better healthcare system. And to do it right, I mean, Buckminster Fuller used to say the best way to make something to, to make changes, to just build a different model, render the old model obsolete rather than try to tinker with the old model. The problem is we, we don't really have a choice. I mean, unless you know, you're know you Elon Musk and going to Mars and building a healthcare system on Mars, we have the one we have, people use it, they need it. And so we have to work with what we've got. 
But I think one of the fundamental deficits right now in our healthcare system, and I think the pandemic has begun to show some of the fissures and uh, cracks in this, relates to the democratic input around healthcare policy. I really think that we need a lot more health democracy that goes with the various technical parts of the changes that we need. As I said, I think there's real value in, in moving the global budgets, but I also think there's value in having distributed sort of local and regional oversight and accountability in a new way that, that we haven't really seen. And I think that's part of a broader project uh, for the country of figuring out how to rejuvenate democracy rather than having these continuous screaming matches that, that seem to be what politics is these days. There are a lot of challenges here. There's no question about it. But what motivates me is that I can actually see and imagine a system that really serves people where they are in their communities, that doesn't bankrupt them, that actually doesn't permit and allow levels of malfeasance and profiteering that the current system seems to accept. And that could actually be part of the solution of our economic problems rather than part of the problem. And I think that kind of healthcare system could turbocharge every other aspect of our society as well. So I think there's a lot of hope and a lot of reason to stay focused on this because the payoff is gonna be huge. I just have one last question and that's how can our listeners learn more about the Lown Institute and support your work? Well, you can go to our website, certainly. If you wanna know more about the Lown Institute, you can go to launinstitute.org. And if you want to know more about the Lown Hospitals Index, you can go to lownhospitalsindex.org. The Hospitals Index, I think, is really terrific and it's very easy to use. And we'd also welcome any questions people have by emailing us at info at Perfect. Again, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and, and learning about your perspectives and, and contributions that you've been making. Thank you for having us. Thank you.